Hello, everybody, and welcome back once again to another Lights Camera Sports Podcast presented by Chestnut Hill Technologies. I'm your host, Mike Galtieri. So happy to be back once again this week. We have a very fun and special podcast for you. I recently spoke with Tom Spencer, who works for CBS Sports as an editorial consultant, working primarily with Jim Nance. We had a nice conversation. Tom talked about his career, his progression, and how he's reached this level with CBS Sports. Also talked about his typical week covering the NFL and PGA Tour, and how he works with Jim and trying to get all those little nuggets you hear during a broadcast filled with information. So it was a very exciting podcast. First, want to remind everybody, if you're a Boston College football fan, you need to be part of the BC Football Gridiron Club. Just go to bcfootballgridiron.com for more details and to sign up. All right, first we'll hear from our sponsors, Chestnut Hill Technologies and Stone Love and Pizza, and then go right into the podcast with Tom Spencer, CBS Sports. As always, thank you so much for listening. Chestnut Hill Technologies is a leading technology integration and cybersecurity consulting firm based in the Boston area and owned by BC alum. CHT provides world-class strategy and consulting to Fortune 500 and mid-cap firms throughout New England and nationally, including State Street Bank, Amaj Pharma, and Intel Corporation. Check them out at chestnuthilltechnologies.com. That's chestnuthilltechnologies.com. At Stone Love and Pizza, their mission is simple, to offer the most creative selection of hand-tossed, all-natural pizza in the Neapolitan tradition. Their pizzas are cooked in a stone-fired brick oven directly on the stone to lock in the flavor. Stone Love and Pizza uses all-natural products. In other words, their dough, sauce, and cheese contain no additives, preservatives, or weird chemicals of any kind. Come visit one of Stone Lovin's three locations, including the newest location at 1649 Beacon Street in Newton. Go Eagles! Hello, everybody, and welcome back once again to the Lights Camera Sports Podcast presented by Chestnut Hill Technologies. like to uh, welcome you back once again, and right in the heart of the summer, I thought it'd be great uh, to check up with a friend of mine, caught up with him at the Travelers Championship, uh, Tommy Spencer. Tom Spencer works for CBS Sports, the editorial consultant for Jim Nance. He's a right, his right-hand man for golf telecasts, NFL telecasts, all throughout the year, so First of all, Tom, it's an honor. Thank you for the time and joining us here on the Lights, Camera, Sports podcast. Hey, Mike. Yeah, it was good to see you in Hartford a few weeks ago at the Travelers. That was a great event, exciting finish, and nice to talk to you and be on your podcast tonight. I appreciate it. We just came back. We were talking about your your busy travel schedule, and you were in D.C., the Quicken Loans National event um, yesterday, really. And Francesco Molinari, what a performance by him, first of all, Tom. And I have to ask you a question. As I was watching the telecast in my living room, the stat about the first Italian golfer uh, since 1947, Tony Pena, I thought that must have came from Tommy Spencer. Was I accurate in that assessment? That did, did not come from me. <laughs> that came from the, the PGA Tour archives, but, okay. but it did uh, play a nice role uh, in the show yesterday, kind of to show how rare it is for an Italian-born player to, to win in the United States, because they have had um, some outstanding you know, players in the last uh, few decades. Now, Tony Pena went back to 1947, so that, that was quite a long time, but you might remember Costantino Roca, uh, played uh, some high-level golf in the late 90s. He actually nearly won the Open Championship at St. Andrews. John Daly beat him in a playoff. Uh, and then he actually played the final day with Tiger Woods at the 97 Masters. Now, no one was going to catch 
Tiger that day. That's the record-setting performance that really sort of ignited his entire career. But the Roca was there, and then you have um, Matteo Manassero, who is a young player still in his probably late 20s now, who, who is a pretty good performer. And then you have the Molinari brothers, Eduardo, who won the U.S. Amateur in 2005 at Marion. He plays the Masters in 2006 with Tiger Woods the first round as the U.S. Amateur champion. Tiger was defending champion. And who's his caddy that day is his brother, Francesco. So Francesco's caddying in the Masters in 2006. And now if you said next year Francesco Molinari might be a guy that could win the Masters, it wouldn't be that far-fetched. So pretty cool story. And what a dominate performance he was yesterday. Never let Tiger really open the door at all to get him involved. Well, you're right, and if it had been Dustin Johnson or Rory McIlroy, even like a Ricky Fowler, we, we would have been, it might have been the lead story on all the national sports cast last night, but because it's Molinari and, and he's a steady player in general, doesn't have a, a, an eye-popping resume, he's been a solid player in Europe, played on a couple of Ryder Cup teams, but we would have made a really, really big deal about it. Uh, now, we tried to yesterday on CBS to convey that this is one of the best performances of the year. It really was. Not only uh, just yesterday, which shooting 62, but really the entire four rounds. So, um, but Molinari's a, a solid guy. I, I wouldn't expect him to go on a run of, of four or five wins in a row, but, but he's certainly a guy that could win multiple times in a season, and, and uh, you got to give him credit because golf is one of those sports where you can get better with age. And even though you're in your mid-30s, early 40s, uh, your best years might be ahead of you. Now, now Tiger Woods, we don't know if that's the case. His best years are probably behind him. But it was a good showing by Tiger yesterday. Once again, unfortunately, he's not able to, to finish it off when he gets in contention. And that's been a problem all year. If you want to call it a problem, it is a comeback. And expectations were set fairly low. But, but at this point in the year, Mike, I would say that, that Tiger's got to figure out a way to close the door or you're going to have a lot of questions in his own mind going into next season to see if he can really truly get back into the winner's circle. Joined here by Tom Spencer, Jim Nance, right-hand man, editorial consultant. Uh, Tom, let's let's backtrack a little bit with you, if you don't mind. I love to hear people's stories. Everyone has a story. Uh, you grew up in San Francisco in the Bay Area, the Peninsula, uh, Burlingame Game High School. Uh, just talk about what your childhood was like. Was golf always a passion of yours? Did you play other sports? Just give us a background to your, your childhood. Well, I appreciate it. I, I, I don't think about it enough, but uh, I, uh, it's enjoyable to kind of jog the memory a little bit. I, I'm kind of, a, I guess, a quirky guy in a sense, and my wife would vouch for this. Uh, the, when I was eight years old, the things that I sort of became passionate about in sports at that time, be it players or teams, um, I still maintain those allegiances today. So nothing has really changed. The one thing that did change as I got into my early teenage years was that I, I found uh, the sport of golf and, and really enjoyed it. So um, I, I did play golf uh, in high school at, at Burlingame and, and did not play in college, although I, I tried out for the, the team as a walk-on, but I was way above my head. But I, I did try to keep my game somewhat sharp and, and still play uh, a fair amount uh, today and, and uh, once in a while we'll, we'll, we'll try to compete but I always enjoyed the game immensely and I think it was sort of a natural thing I guess for me because I not only loved to play golf but I did enjoy watching it and following it and for some reason I always felt like CBS golf was the, the gold standard in coverage 
And it wasn't just the Masters, although the Masters was always the signature event, but it was just the way they showcased the tour back in the 80s and, and early 90s. So maybe it was um, a natural thing for me to do to, to get involved with them down the road. Well, the, the, the big thing that happened to me, Mike, was my freshman year in college. I went out to the Los Angeles Open at Riviera, and I just happened to bump into Jim Nance. And um, I was a Fred Couples fan, and, of course, Jim and Fred went to college together, best best friends. And this is actually um, prior to Fred winning the Masters, which now their story is, is very well known. But um, I, I struck up a conversation with Jim, and lo and behold, after shaking hands and saying goodbye, three months later I was back in New York visiting my uh, buddy from college, and we went out to the Westchester Tournament, and I see Jim again, and I walk up to him and just to sort of reintroduce myself and say a quick hello. And before I could even get the words out of my mouth, he's going, Tommy Spencer, how are things going in college? How's, how's this? How's that? And he remembered me. I was amazed by it. And that led to a, uh, a friendship and then now a working relationship that, that goes back really uh, 30 years. It started in the fall uh, or the spring of 1988. Wow, that's a, it's a very cool story. It's very interesting. Um, and going back to your high school days, where you growing up the Peninsula, were you always, I assume, a Niners fan, Joe Montana, that era? Well, you're going to probably find this uh, to be a little bit quirky. All, all my friends from New York laugh at me because they also come from a market that has multiple teams in, in the same sport. So, say, two football teams, two baseball teams, as, as New York does. Um I rooted equally for the Raiders and the Niners, <laughs> equally for the A's and the Giants. Now, we only had the Warriors for basketball and then later the Sharks for hockey. So you, you're, you're probably your follow-up to that is, well, what happens when they play in the Super Bowl or the World Series? <laughs> and luckily, that only happened once, yeah. and it was the ill-fated, infamous 1989 World Series with the A's and the Giants, of course, interrupted by the Loma Prieta earthquake, and, and when the earthquake hit, it just took really so much of the steam out of the series that at that point it didn't even matter really who won. The A's were the better team. They were amazing that year, uh, and they ended up uh, sweeping the Giants. But the Niners and the Raiders never played in the Super Bowl, so I look at it as I have um, – I've got five – Niner Super Bowls and three Raiders Super Bowls, so I count it as eight. Now, how does that match up against your Patriots there, Mike? <laughs> it's, a, it's, not, it's not a fair fight, two against one, but, but New England's doing a pretty good job of keeping that one close. We have the Raiders to thank for the tuck rule, though, in 2001. Yes, so. you do. Yes, you do. <laughs> um, I still haven't forgotten about it. Yeah, no, no question about it. Um, but, Tommy, let's talk about it as well. Two, uh, you must, speaking of the Raiders, what do you think about the move to Las Vegas? You just got me thinking as you were speaking. Is that tough for the area, or do you think it'll, everyone's will adjust? Well, I think it's very tough, and it, it's very sad, and, and I'm, I'm really disappointed that, it, that it's happening. And, and I know that there's a lot of allure, and, and there's a, an appeal to Las Vegas, and, and things are changing in the sports culture and all that. I'm just sad that it's, that it's one of the Bay Area teams that, that has to be the one to go there. And I understand some of the reasons why, um, and, and you can go back many, many years and, and, and sort of try to figure out exactly why this happened. Now, for, for those in your listening audience that remember, the Raiders, of course, have already moved once. They, they left Oakland mm -hmm. after the 81 season and moved to L.A., subsequently came back in 95. And at that point, you're thinking, boy, bygones be bygones, and, 
and uh, this, the Raiders are back here to stay, but they just never could get a new stadium built. And um, although the Niners were able to do so, there's even some regret there, I think, that they've had to leave San Francisco and go 40 miles south down to Santa Clara and, and San Jose to the South Bay market to, to keep the team in town. So California politics play a role. Uh, the Raiders' ownership with Al Davis and now his son Mark play a role. Um, a lot of factors involved, but I, I am not thrilled to see them leave. But I hope that before they do, they can bring a, a title to Oakland and, and really reward the, the fans who've been there since day one, which was back in 1966. Tom, you mentioned you went to USC after high school. From uh, First of all, what attracted you to go south uh, from Northern California? And what was it like, your college experience there? You mentioned you tried out for the golf team, but... Uh, and are you still a USC Trojans fan? Yeah, absolutely. It, it was a tremendous school for me. I, I knew they had a great communications program. I, I don't say I don't think I was destined to get into sports broadcasting, but it was always something that I was very interested in. And and I guess you look back on it now and you think that it was a natural thing to gravitate towards. But um, I come from a family. All four of my grandparents went to Stanford, wow. as did my father. My mom went to Cal. So it's kind of like, you know, being the first one in the family to, to leave the Bay Area to go to school. Um, and I was not getting in either one of those schools, by the way. And, <laughs> and USC uh, was attractive uh, for me for, for the reasons I, I stated. I wanted to, to maintain a, a California residence. And um, it was just it was fun to go to school in Los Angeles. And as you can imagine, you get exposed to a lot of things down there in the media world. Uh, looking back, I mean, the Lakers were in their absolute heyday when I was in college. Uh, went to a few Dodger games. Of course, USC, I realized quickly, because I grew up following the Bay Area schools, and you weren't necessarily rooting for USC at all. In fact, um, the greatest play I've ever seen in person, and I've now covered a lot of football games at, at the professional ranks, but it was a college game in about 1980, John Elway, his junior year, he's playing USC with Ronnie Lott and um, Joey Browner, Marcus Allen, I mean, all kinds of heavyweights. And, and Stanford did not have a great day, but Elway had this amazing play where he scrambled four times across the field to avoid the rush and threw about a 70-yard touchdown pass. And at that time, I was like, this is great for Stanford, really rooting. I was not a USC fan. Of course, things change when you go to school there. So I, I do maintain... My allegiances, of course, the Pete Carroll years were, were a lot of fun to watch, and, and they're still a very, very competitive program producing a lot of NFL players. Yeah, you know, I had a great experience. BC played USC a couple of years ago, so we uh, a bunch of friends and I we went to that game in Southern California, and then USC beat us up pretty good that year, but uh, we actually came back 2014, and BC fans actually won their better wins the last five years. We actually beat USC in Chestnut Hill, so... Yep. You're, you're right. It's a, a game. It's yeah, a, it was a night game, wasn't it? And I think uh, USC really uh, struggled to put up points that night. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, Saturday night game. You're right. Keyshawn Johnson was there. Will Ferrell. It was like Chestnut Hill got evaded by Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. That's great. So it was a great time. But, yeah, that's, that's what a great school that is. Um, and then, so you mentioned, too, you met Jim Nance during this time. How did this translate to you going from college, meeting him at the tournaments, uh, to helping him out on the research side after school? Yeah, so uh, when I got out of school, and I, I would bump into Jim periodically through my, my four years in school, uh, I, I did enjoy going to golf tournaments. So that was one thing I, that, that being in Los Angeles, 
you could jump in, in your car on a weekend and drive to San Diego. Yeah. Go to Torrey Pines or or La Costa. You could you could uh, take off on a Friday after your last class and and go out to Palm Springs and go to the Bob Hope. Yeah. I used to caddy in college in the um, AT and T Pebble Beach Pro Am. Wow. So uh, these are all you know golf tournaments. Of course, not all CBS. There's Phoenix. I think one year I went with some buddies out to Phoenix, did a road trip. You got Las Vegas. Now, again, they're not all CBS events, but by virtue of being out there as a, as a student and a fan, you kind of get acclimated to what's going on on the tour. I, I maintain contact with Jim. And then when I left school and moved back to the Bay Area, my first job, and I still do maintain a, a, a working relationship with KNBR 680, um, which is sort of the, the West Coast 50,000-watt powerhouse uh, all-sports station. And, and I, I just happened to get on board when they were transitioning from more sort of half coverage of sports and, and a lot of talk radio to all sports. And one of the guys I worked for was a gentleman named Pete Franklin. Yes. And Pete was from Cleveland and was brought in to start WFAN in 1987. Yes. But unfortunately, he had some health problems, and he, and he was forced to retire. But a couple years later, KNBR brought him out of retirement. Well, that coincided with my, my, call, my start with the company, and I worked with Pete. Turns out Jim listened to Pete growing up in New Jersey because the signal from Cleveland on 3WE at night would travel so far that he could listen on his transistor radio. Wow. So when I found out that, they were, um, they, that Jim you know, was a, a fan... And an admirer of Pete's, I set it up where Jim came on the show and was a guest. And it was a big thrill for Jim and for Pete. Um, so Jim was aware that I had a radio background. He knew that I followed golf and was passionate about it. So in 1995, he and a gentleman named Chuck Will, who hired a lot of people at CBS, including our coordinating producer, Lance Barrow, uh, Chuck just passed away, incidentally, uh, earlier this year. Great man. Yes. But um, Chuck and Jim basically created a position for me to come out on the road. I left my job at KNBR where I was I was an associate producer, but I was getting some on-air reps. I was covering major championships, going to the Masters, the U.S. Open, uh, went to the Ryder Cup over in England, the PGA. So I was having a lot of fun, but this was a, gr a great, obviously, next step for me. And basically, I haven't, I haven't uh, gotten off the train since. Yeah, that's that's an interesting story, and that's awesome. And Chuck's a guy I've always heard about too from my days going back in college as being a spotter, and you know now Mark Dibbs. But you always heard that name at CBS Sports. Yep, he and Frank Turkinian were the two legends. The, 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 the great thing about CBS Golf, Mike, and you've been around the, the culture to to know this. It's it's a family atmosphere. I think it's very rare in sports television that it still exists. Uh, we've had two coordinating producers, which would be the equivalent of saying you've had two CEOs of a, of a major corporation since 1956. So wow. Frank Turkinian until 1996 when he retired, and now Lance Barrow. And then all the support staff, all the announcers, Nansen McCord, who've been there since the mid-'80s, um, even up to the, we'd call them the more recent uh, groupings, which would be Nick Faldo and Ian Baker Finch, who are both kind of like in the 10 to 12 year range uh, with CBS. Peter Costas goes back to the early 90s. Yeah, you have Dottie Pepper, who's, who's come on board here uh, in, in the last few years. 
So the the talent's been the same. The production's been the same. Technical. We have Hall of Fame camera operators, audio personnel. Uh, everybody involved has, has been with this company for many, many years. And the common denominator is, is we all love and, and really respect the work and the, and the, uh, the legacy of, of CBS Golf and want to maintain it. No question about it. And, you know, d- describe, Tommy, as well, your early days with Jim. And I'm interested, it's in now the mid-'90s. Uh, just talk about how your job has changed, I assume, I'm guessing, you know, pre-Internet and now Internet, uh, and just how you went about doing the, you know, I always hear the term nugget hunting uh, for players and during games. Yeah. Well, it's a great question. I think about it now. Of course, the Internet has changed things in, in, a, in a lot of ways. But, but the bread and butter of our, of our business, Mike, is, is, is storytelling. And, and you mentioned earlier the, the statistic yesterday about uh, last Italian-born winner. And, and, and golf is, is certainly a statistical game. There's a lot of math, a lot of calculations, a lot of numbers, a lot of history. And the shot link uh, era now has, has given you know, the fan base an incredible database of information about their favorite players. And that all that fascinates me, and anyone that plays golf would love to know the numbers. But at, at the core, in terms of the way Jim approaches golf television, it's a storytelling medium. So uh, what I started doing probably a year or two after I came on board was compiling a database of information, our, our own. Let's call it our own. It's it's um, it's just now probably over a thousand pages of, of biographical information on players, and it's not necessarily information that if you went online and, and googled a, a, a certain individual's name or you had access to PGA Tour material that you would that you would find. We're trying to, to locate information that's is separate from sort of mainstream um, data. And uh, and then you keep then you maintain the, the the process of inserting it into your computer and logging it, and it just becomes you know, hundreds and hundreds of bullet points on certain players. Now, now, now Francesco Molinari, for instance, I might have had ten bullet points on his his life and career going into this weekend. Tiger Woods, on the other hand, I've probably got twenty five to thirty pages alone on his career from when he was a young player, a young man to, to uh, even this year. So you're always constantly updating it, but the idea is to have things that are, are maybe unique that you wouldn't hear every day. Because the challenge in golf, as you know, is that you're covering the same core 75 to 100 players who, who have reached the upper echelon, let's say, and it's over a, a long period of time. It could be 10, 15, 20, 25 years. So how do you distinguish every time you're on the air something new to that particular player that, that the audience hasn't heard many times over. And that, that's kind of one of our goals each and every weekend. And what I, as a fan, what I always appreciate too in your, your work is, you know, like yes, yesterday's a good example. There were some players on the leaderboard who, you know, weren't well known. And uh, you guys, Jim, you guys find that information, where he went to college uh, and where that, go, you know, go from there. So I met the Travelers two weeks ago. I forget his name now, but there's a player from Florida State who just came out of nowhere. He qualified on Monday, the amateur. So um, Monday qualifier, excuse me, not an amateur. But that type of stuff, the average fan is not going to know. Where they, You're right, they might know about the, bi- the biographical background information on Tiger Woods. 
Well, you, you bring up a good point. So going back, like yesterday, there was a gentleman in the last pairing named Abraham Answer. Yes, who yes. Who went to the University of Oklahoma, um, Mexican heritage, du- dual citizenship. So we, we did not have a lot of information on Abraham after Saturday's round. Um, we've seen him a couple times this year on leaderboards, but this is the first time he's going to be in the heart of our coverage. So you, you, at this point, you don't have a lot of options. You can't really you know, go spend a, a ton of time on the range Sunday morning you know, interviewing a guy because he's trying to win a tournament. Yes. And he yeah. might give you a few you know, info pieces of information that are helpful, but you don't want to be really in his, in his face and, and bothering him much. So your next options are to start talking to people in his inner circle. So I actually spent about 15 minutes on the phone with his agent yesterday, uh, right when he flew into D.C., and got some really good stuff. Now, not much of it made air because, unfortunately, by the time he you know, was making the turn yesterday, he'd fallen off the leaderboard. And in golf television, Mike, as you know, you kind of have to narrow your focus on a Sunday to the, really the, the core four or five players that have a chance to win. And, and you want to show as much live golf as you can. So anyway, a lot of information we had, and this happens frequently, and I'm sure you can relate, you never even makes the air just yep. because there aren't any opportunities. Going back a few weeks to Memphis, um, the final round coincided with Al Geiberger's uh, 59 that he shot in 1977, June the 10th. So this year's final round was also on June the 10th. And because of that, uh, we, we reached out to Mr. Geiberger. I, I called him the morning of the final round in Palm Springs, talked to him for about 10 minutes. Turns out his wife's birthday is also June the 10th. So that was kind of a cool little note. And, and I wanted to make sure that he was going to be watching. Uh, and, and he was. He said, I'll be watching the whole, the whole final round. So lo and behold, the last hole, Dustin Johnson holes out from the fairway. Yeah. And it was kind of a cool moment because you had June the 10th, 77, this amazing round in tour history. And then all the way all these years later in 2018, Dustin Johnson, who's going to win the tournament anyway, but holes out on the 72nd hole from like 171. Yeah. It was kind of a nice little segue. And we also did a little feature in the middle of the show on Guy Berger's round. So that's sometimes where television, you can kind of script things a little bit, and it works out for you, and that, that was one of those instances. Yeah, I remember watching that a lot. Yeah, that, that's a great a great story. And I would think golf, you have a little bit more time, at least at points, to fit things in, whereas, you know, an NFL game, you kind of have mercy of the play at, at field, but fit in a feature here and there maybe of golf, a three-hour broadcast. Yeah, you definitely have a better, a better pace. Now, golf is, is frenetic early in a show the hardest parts of a golf telecast are like the first hour on a saturday or sunday because yeah. in theory 10 guys might still have a chance to win and, and we're cutting around rapidly to show as much golf as possible so i said it's a storytelling endeavor but you have to pick your spots you can't force stories um we had one yesterday that uh, that I I mentioned to Jim and that he liked a lot, but there was never an opportunity to get it on the air, so it just it just doesn't happen. Yep. And um, football is is like you say is a different animal because you've got all these plays happening in rapid succession, and, and the key in a football game is more really identification about who's in the game and and what's happening at that particular moment. It's not necessarily about their past and what led them to that field that day. It's more about what's happening today. And, and in football, in many
many cases you're just reacting. And it, cause it, it could be any number of guys. You can't really go in to a football game like you do a golf tournament where you know you're going to be covering half a dozen golfers. Football game, it could be anyone on the active roster that makes a, a critical play in a game. And that's a great segue to my last couple questions here with the NFL, something you're obviously heavily involved with, America's most popular sport. But, uh, Tom, I know you do some Thursday games, but if you can, describe to our listening audience uh, a typical week when you do one Sunday, 1 o'clock NFL game. Just take us through the week uh, from Monday morning all the way to the game on the following Sunday. And just let us know. Give us the play-by-play of your week. <laughs> sure, Mike. Well, there's a good chance if it's a, a Sunday game, we'll be in New England. We've done – I lost track, but we've got to be close to 100 Patriot games since I came on board in 2004. Yeah. And, of course, it, that coincided with – that was the, the third Super Bowl year um, out of the four-season run in, in the early 2000s. So I, I was able to really get in there. Um, part of just um, broadly thinking here, you know, where I'm from is uh, – you mentioned Burlingame, California. Well, the town next door is San Mateo. And yeah. that would be, of course, the home of, of Tom Brady. So. Uh, I do know the family, and 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 through this job, of, of I wouldn't say gotten to know Tom, but 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 I know him a little bit, and of course respect him immensely. And Coach Belichick, I mean, I, I feel like you know growing up with Walsh in Montana and Madden Stabler, um, you know Flores and Plunkett, those those are some pretty dynamic tandems, Seaford and Steve Young. But I think the Belichick Brady one is is probably unparalleled, not only in football but in sports. So to be an eyewitness to really the majority of their run together has been fascinating. But but basically for a Sunday game, we will show up on um, either Thursday night or Friday morning, depending upon where you live. And you spend the majority of Friday. Friday is definitely a work day. You are, you are at the home team's complex. So again, Patriots, we are out at Gillette. They, they practice, play, they do everything at their own stadium, which, by the way, I think is a, is a huge advantage for them to be able to practice in their stadium and, and have everything sort of in one spot, whereas you go to other, other facilities and, and there might be a considerable distance between a team's uh, practice complex and where they play on Sundays. Not a big deal, but I think it's a subtle way that New England just has a slight advantage over uh, other franchises. You spend yeah. the day, you meet with the coach Belichick, you meet with Tom, you meet with probably four or five other players and or coordinators. Uh, we've had good rapports with Josh McDaniels through the years, Matt Patricia before he left. So again, using the Patriots as an example, this would apply to any team, whether it be Pittsburgh, the Raiders, Miami, Green Bay, wherever we go, same thing. You're always going to meet head coach, quarterback, and uh, several other key players. I'd say they're casual interviews, 15 minutes long, 20 minutes. There is inf- information exchanged in there that is not allowed to leave the room. We totally understand that. I've always respected it. have never once uh, broken that, that bond, that promise, until game day when you see it happen, and then, then you can react. Um, Saturday is a little lighter. Uh, now, Friday night, we get together, probably have a dinner you know, amongst our group. So you're talking about football, what you did that day, the game last Sunday that you covered, et cetera, the league in general. Saturday, you meet with the visiting team uh, whenever they arrive, which is generally 4 or 5 in the afternoon if it's a 1 o'clock game. Um, and that's a little bit more, I would say, rushed 
because they have meetings at their hotel. So you're going to meet head coach, quarterback, and probably one or two other players, and it's going to be more rapid fire. So that night we go back to our hotel, have a full-fledged production meeting, go over all the elements to the game that we control, storylines, graphics, notes, nuggets, uh, anything that's come up that day that we want to share with the rest of our group. And Sunday you do the game. And at that point, all the planning goes out the, by the wayside because you're just reacting. Now, you have certain things that you're going to get on the air regardless and obligations, of course, to your network and the NFL. But from, for the most part, once that ball is kicked, um, you just try to remember things that you heard or, or read or learned, and then, you, uh, and then you try to get it on the air. Yeah, that's well said. And, you know, you mentioned the Patriots. I don't know if many Patriot fans people know up here, but you guys stay in Providence, Rhode Island, and a lot of the visiting teams for New England stay in Providence as well. So I, that's a little bit of a logistics getting back and forth to Foxborough. Am I correct in that? Uh, it can be. You know, it's it's like you split the difference. I mean, you could stay in Boston and run into the same the same traffic problems, yeah. I suppose. But yeah, I've, I've, we've we've met with teams virtually in any location between Providence and Boston through the years. Um, I would say. 60% of the teams, visiting teams, have stayed right in downtown Providence. And, um, at, at, you know, that's, that's, that's a nice thing for us because our hotel is within walking distance of, of a couple of the AFC road hotels. So you'd prefer that versus having to go all the way back up to Logan or up near, let, let's say, you know, Brookline and, and that part of the city where you're driving an hour both ways to, uh, to meet for, like, say, 45 minutes to an hour with a visiting team. So from our standpoint, anytime the visitors are staying in Providence, we're happy. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no question about it. And then just talk to, maybe people don't realize, I've seen it before, uh, the production of spotting boards and stats, the work that goes in before actually even arriving in the city. Just talk about how that, that whole process works with you and Jim uh, briefly, Tom. Right. That's not something I'm even involved with. And I, and I give Jim a lot of credit. Um, it's something that he wants to do himself. And, and I think he does it because I know he does it for, for memorization purposes. Yes. Like there are other play-by-play announcers uh, and some at a very high level that, that have somebody do their own boards for them. Um, but if I were a play-by-play football announcer or any, any sport, I would want to do my own boards as well because there's something about putting pen to to paper or pen to board, pencil to board, whatever it is, and you're writing it yourself, that has to help you on game day. So typically Jim, and he lives on the West Coast, and, and I can relate to his, his struggles. I, I moved with my family to the East Coast three years ago, but for many years I was crisscrossing uh, the United States on Sunday nights and Thursday afternoons to get back to New England, and those are long flights. So Jim actually, after a game, if he gets out that night or the following morning, he will have his board for the following week's game already ready to go by the time he lands. Wow. So he's, and a lot of it is just sort of the biographical information. Now, he'll read hundreds and hundreds of pages of information during the week about the two teams we're covering. I will also read that same material, as will many others in our production group, Tony Romo, uh, who's, who's now on board, did a great job last year. Tony sees this material, our producer Jim Rickoff, our director Mike Arnold. So we're all reading the same material, and Jim extracts stuff from there, 
And then the meetings we have on, on Friday and Saturday, he'll, he'll write in notes and on his board. So it's all fresh in his mind come game day when, as I said earlier, you're just reacting to what you see on the field. And at that given time, when you've got five seconds to come up with something poignant, it's really what's the first thing that, that pops into your head. Yeah, no question about it. And that's I think from I I excuse me from my experience too. I can totally agree with that. That's There's something about writing down a name and retaining it mentally. It really helps you out uh, during that that three hour broadcast. Yeah, and and just picture this, like you know, on your board are all these names and numbers, right? And and not everybody is 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 Tom Brady or. Um, Julian Edelman or Rob Gronkowski, where it's just instantly recognizable who, who the guy is. I mean, you might have a third-string tight end or fourth-string running back who comes into the game, and all of a sudden he's running down the sideline uh, for a touchdown. But it happens so fast that if, if you know where you know, number 28 is on your board, you can look down for a half a second, and in the process of making a touchdown call, uh, from a play-by-play perspective, it, it's seamless because you look down, you know 28 is there, you identify his name, and then you finish your call. But if you were stumbling, and there have been some famous calls through the years uh, going many, many years back, but you can hear the play-by-play announcer isn't totally sure of who caught a ball or who ran it in, and, and part of that is proximity to the field that you're so far away or you, you just want to make sure you get it right. But um, that's, I think that's one big bonus to doing it yourself is that you, if you see the number with the naked eye, um, you can make a call really flow seamlessly, and that's what someone like Jim wants to have happen 100% of the time. Last question regarding the Patriots and the NFL travel. Any, you mentioned those Friday meetings with Bill Belichick. Patriot fans love to hear any information. What's he like? Um, we see him on Sunday at 1 o'clock, I guess my question is. But what's he like Friday at 4 p.m. or Friday at 2 p.m.? Is he the same guy? Is he a little more relaxed? Can you take us behind the scenes with that a little bit? Bill is totally different on Friday and Saturdays. Now, now not to say he's not intense. And, and part of the two, and, and this goes back to um, our years with Phil Sims, the great Phil Sims, and, and Bill and, and Phil have and, and have always had a great relationship uh, Jim and, and Jim Nance and Bill have had uh, a superb relationship, a lot of respect. So I think our crew through the years and now with Tony Romo, um, we've always gone in New, to New England, and, and from their perspective looking at us, they, they've welcomed us with open arms and been respectful of the job that we do covering them. Um, so that's, you know, let's start from that premise. But, but Bill, now, I'll say that if you try to get too specific with him about that particular game or a certain player, it's not quite the same as the, as the writers in New England have dealt with through the years, but he's not providing a whole lot of information. But at times, if, if we, we try to keep the meetings with Bill relaxed and let him talk and go any direction he wants to go. And I think when he feels like that's the case and, and, and he's not being prodded for information, that, he, that he's willing to reveal stuff. And, again, he trusts us en- enough to know that if he tells us something on Friday about the game, about a player, about strategy, about game plan, or Saturday night if it's a road game, that it's not going to leave that room. Because a lot of information these days gets out 
somehow, um, whether it be insiders in the NFL, players and agents who talk to certain people, things get out. And there's nothing more that bothers people like Bill Belichick than information about a game that he realizes is out in the open world before Sunday at 1 or Sunday at 4.25. So anyway, he, he's very open about his life, his career, loves the history of the game, um, is quite talkative on certain subjects, and we've had nothing but fun and, and, and admiration for him through the years. It's been great to be in his presence and, and learn from him. Chestnut Hill Technologies is a leading technology integration and cybersecurity consulting firm based in the Boston area and owned by BC alum. CHT provides world-class strategy and consulting to Fortune 500 and mid-cap firms throughout New England and nationally, including State Street Bank, Amaj Pharma, and Intel Corporation. Check them out at chestnuthilltechnologies.com. That's chestnuthilltechnologies.com. At Stone Love and Pizza, their mission is simple, to offer the most creative selection of hand-tossed, all-natural pizza in the Neapolitan tradition. Their pizzas are cooked in a stone-fired brick oven directly on the stone to lock in the flavor. Stone Love and Pizza uses all-natural products. In other words, their dough, sauce, and cheese contain no additives, preservatives, or weird chemicals of any kind. Come visit one of Stone Lovin's three locations, including the newest location at 1649 Beacon Street in Newton. Go Eagles! I'm going back now to golf, too. First of all, for a guy like me who's never seen, uh, when I think CBS golf, I think a lot of people think the Augusta National Golf Course. Can you just give us, uh, what, what? first of all, during the broadcast, are you in Butler Cabin? Or are you in 18th Tower? And just give us a behind-the-scenes look of what we don't can't see on TV of what Augusta National is like, say, on a Sunday afternoon. Well, it there's no place in sports you'd rather be than at Augusta on a Sunday. I'll, I'll say that. I, I don't know that anyone who's ever gone there, whether they're a huge golf admirer or just a casual sports fan, hasn't come away and just been in awe. And, and it's not only the course that's so majestic, it, it's, it's the atmosphere on a Sunday. It rivals any sporting event when, when things get going. This year was a great example. It was electric out there. Patrick Reed playing with McElroy, and then you have Fowler making an amazing charge. Uh, Jordan Spieth was on his way to shooting possibly 61 or 62 until he faltered at the end. Uh, the, the place was truly on fire. Um, and that's I could give you countless stories in my tenure. I, I go back to the early 90s when I first started going to the Masters and, and covering the tournament. So that's the one side of it the the work the work end is 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 stressful um you're, you're so jazzed because you're getting the honor of covering the final round of the masters um part of our challenge so in 97 when tiger won you know jim jim is coming off the final four as he does every year and, and there was some strain on his voice and um there was a lot of pollen so if you actually go back and somehow listened or, or were able to watch the first three days of the 97 Masters, my recollection is that Jim barely had a voice. He, he, he literally had no voice. And Sunday wow. uh, it came back, and, and thankfully it did, because you know his call, win for the ages, yes. is going to be replayed for 100 years. And it wouldn't sound as, as, as poignant if, if he had the, the laryngitis uh, you know, the, the, the horse voice. So um, at that point in time, I think Jim realized that it, to, to avoid being outside, you have to sometimes call more golf inside Butler Cabin 
uh, on the weekends. So fast forward now, the last few years, um, there's been some weather years where it's rained or there's been a lot of wind. And in our towers, you're fighting the elements. It sounds strange, but when you're out there and you're being buffeted by the wind or the sun's uh, setting and super low, um, there's certain constraints on your work environment that, that, that are not easy. So sometimes being in Butler Cabin where he can spread out and, and call golf at a normal voice inflection because when you're out on the 18th hole, you've got the ninth green is just to your right, about 30 feet away, maybe they'll call it 50 feet, and then the 18th green below you, and, and let's say you're calling a shot on the 10th hole. So you could conceivably have guys putting on 9 and 18, but you're calling golf elsewhere, and you don't realize that your voice is carrying and they hear you. So that's a little bit of a, of a struggle there, too. Um, to, the bottom line is we bounce back and forth. We start the show in Butler, move outside to the tower, call the final you know, few players coming down the stretch, and then Jim races to Butler for the green jacket ceremony. It's one of the all-time toughest transitions or any broadcaster, and Jim's done it seamlessly for decades. He loves the challenge of, of trying to pull it off and does so every year, and it's a big deal to him. So, it, it, But you're, you're walking a little bit of a tightrope, every single year to make sure that that goes off without any glitches and and uh, it never has and i don't think it ever will yeah i remember reading an article or maybe even talking to jim i think when he says he said to that article that you know when he thinks of himself his career he thinks one of the top moments of his entire year year and year out is doing that butler cabin ceremony at the end of the masters broadcast yeah it, it's a true honor for him because because jim grew up loving the masters and loving cbs so how many guys get to call uh, the, the the premier event of their youth on the network of choice that they loved and it's all come to fruition for them i'm, I'm just thinking here uh, off the top of my head a very equal comparison mike would be when like last year the patriots win the afc championship as they've done so many times and so many times at gillette so we call the game Jim and Tony sign off. Jim then goes through the crowd at Gillette, right down onto the field. You've got how many countless fans just in total euphoria. And now here come the announcers right through the crowd to go down to the, to the podium in the middle of the field. Most play-by-play announcers would want to sit back and put their feet up in the booth and just watch the ceremony and just revel in the fact that they called – you know, one of the biggest games uh, uh, of the season, if not the biggest to, to that point, in front of the biggest audience. But Jim wants to be down on the field and, and giving the trophy away and interviewing Mr. Kraft and Bill Belichick and Tom Brady and whoever the other players are. And that's a difficult transition to do every single year, um, but, but he pulls it off in, in grand fashion. At least at Gillette, uh, the press box, I know the press box is a little bit lower than most stadiums. But uh, you're right, that must be a tough yeah. to get through the crowd after just winning the AFC Championship game. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a, cool, it's a cool thing to be on the field and feel the energy coming from, from the fans. And even though the year Baltimore upset the Patriots and That's we did right. it in the visiting locker room, it was an amazing feeling to be in the visitors' locker room while they celebrated too. So you get both sides of it. You got me thinking as you were talking, going back to Augusta National in that 1997 I don't know if you remember this, but this is a trivia fact uh, for me. That day, I loved watching the tournament, really enjoyed it. But also one of the worst days of my my childhood. 
uh, because that was the hometown Hartford Whalers, Connecticut, up here. We lost our team. That was our last ever game. I don't know if you're a big NHL guy, but uh, that was that exact same Sunday. So I remember going from the – it was a Sunday afternoon game and then going back to watch you guys on CBS. But uh, Wow. A tough you know, game. I can relate. I mean, we were talking <laughs> earlier in the podcast about the Raiders leaving Oakland, and I think it's horrible – when professional teams leave leave markets and leave cities, and of course it's horrible for the folks like us that grew up loving these teams, but it it happens so frequently now. I think people are almost jaded at the process. Yeah, they're now the Carolina Hurricanes, but uh, <laughs> twenty years ago now at least, like, I, time for me to get over it. <laughs> um, Hard to do, right? <laughs> twenty one years later, but you still haven't forgotten. <laughs> Tom, last couple questions here. Was there ever a broadcast golf NFL? When you walked away and you just said, wow, that was, a, you know, you walked away really proud. That was a good broadcast. And you were like, I was really happy with that performance. Well, uh, I'll, I'll answer it a different way. I've never walked away from a broadcast feeling disappointed. So if you add it all up, and my, and my first um, official event with CBS was in 1995 to now, I, I cannot think of one show where we've all sort of collectively thought that that was a disaster or, or, or I can't believe that happened or, or felt bad about it. So maybe that's the standard we've set for ourselves. Now, a lot of things in television get dictated by ratings. So you can look at a show that gets a low number and think, boy, that, that must have been a, a bad broadcast. That, that has nothing to do with what we do, of course. We know when we do a quality show. So thinking of, of just, you know, Basically, every Masters, once the Masters is over, it feels like you know, you've done the Super Bowl of golf. So there's a certain amount of, of euphoria there and then maybe almost a little bit of a letdown because a couple of weeks later you're, you're, you're covering tournaments that don't have quite the same vibe and you're sort of re-energizing and you know, building back up to the, the big tournaments of the summer. But uh, one that stands out, and then, now the 97 Masters will always be probably the highest rated golf tournament ever watched and, and maybe the most historic um, it's right up there with the 86 Masters won by Nicholas and, and a few others that would come to mind but I, one I do remember as far as the feeling and the energy and, and it's the 2000 PGA at Valhalla so Tiger's now won his third major in a row, he's just won a playoff over Bob May, it was an unbelievable Sunday Show. I mean, it was a shootout. They shot 66 and 67, and then a three-hole playoff, and Tiger nudged May at the end. At that point in time, and, 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 the, and the crowd in Louisville, Kentucky, was just going bananas, and Tiger's at his absolute zenith. Um, now you're thinking ahead to the Masters, which is going to be the following April, and the chance for Tiger to win four majors in a row. So th- there was a sense there that these next seven, eight months are going to be an unbelievable buildup to what ultimately was an amazing accomplishment, Tiger winning in 2001. So I, mean, I guess in golf, Michael, to kind of sort of layer this question a little bit, there are guys that are, are, are popular to you individually that when they win, um, you feel really excited for them and hope that you chronicled their story. There was an event, um, I don't have a closeness with Tom Pernice, um, but he won the international one year, and his daughter is, is blind. And to have this scene on the 18th green where Tom Pernice, uh, his daughter, is feeling his face 
knowing that that's her dad and he just won a tournament. He only won a couple of times on the tour. That kind of stands out as being special and unique. So you're looking for Rich Beam winning uh, the Kemper Open with, with a caddy. It was his first win, and his caddy basically guided him around. His name was Steve DePlanis. He unfortunately passed away a few years back, but he guided Beam around the entire week and, and sort of just basically coached him to, to the title. Those are unique events that, that stand out going way back in the time machine. And, of course, more recently, you know, the McElroys and the Spieths, the shot that Spieth hit at Hartford last year, unbelievable moment. Hmm. There are the bunker shot on the 72nd, uh, well, not the 72nd, but the, the first playoff hole, the 73rd hole of the tournament, was uh, truly one to remember as well. And just quickly, quick segue, can you just talk about, I have a lot of listeners in the Connecticut area, just talk about the rise of the Travelers event. Ten years ago, it was in the brink of going to the fall and maybe an LPGA event, but now you look at that field uh, last week, I think five out of the top ten, uh, it just it's a really emerged. It's a nice tournament the week after the U.S. Open. It's the greatest turnaround I've seen at any single PGA Tour event since I've been covering uh, this, the, the tour. So, like you say, it, it was a huge deal in the, in the 80s and 90s, gigantic crowds, kind of rivaling Phoenix Open size. And then, like you say, by the early to mid-2000s, I, I distinctly remember the, the last year where we were basically saying, this is it, we're, this is the final event, and we're not coming back. And unfortunately, there's been a little bit of that this year. There's going to be a huge reshuffling of the tour schedule in 2018-19 um, and the event we did yesterday in Washington is one of those that's, that's going to be uh, transformed into a, a different different city. But, but, yeah, Hartford has come back with a vengeance. They've done an unbelievable job recruiting players to come. They've got a great date the week after the U.S. Open. You'd think that would be a bad date, but I think it's a, a fantastic one because guys have been gearing their, themselves to play in the Open, and they don't, they don't want to just go home for three weeks and shut it down and lose all their momentum. So you've got heavyweight guys. They love the golf course, and it's great for TV. The final four holes, they're really the, the entire back nine is exciting, and you see memorable moments every single year, and Bubba Watson uh, proved that to be true again this year. So it's a great, it's a great event, and um, it's, um, I'm happy to see that, that, that your region there in New England is being well represented. Yeah, we, I also I got you have to credit Andy Bissett, Nathan Groob, and the great yeah. Jay Fishman as well. Travelers has been a godsend, uh, locally at least, with that tournament. No doubt. Great people you just mentioned there. Yep, it, it's a truly, uh, it has a great sort of relaxed hometown feel. Uh, that's what makes it fun. It, it feels like a great summer barbecue kind of hangout, and then there's a golf tournament going on at the same time. So it, it's uh, they've got the formula down pat there. And you would know, Tom, you go everywhere across the country, so it's not like, you know, your opinion is highly valued for that regard because you've seen it all. Well, thanks. Yeah, no, I, I think the, the summer stretch is, is not easy um, because people have a lot of things going on in their lives, but but Hartford and the Travelers folks have really figured out a great formula to make their event a must-attend and a must-watch. And talk about going to all the events quickly, uh, traveling-wise. I know you have a couple, I must have had a million stories of delayed flights, canceled flights. Uh, any particular stories stick out to you, though, in your time and travels with CBS Sports? <laughs> Well, I, I won't bore you with stories of sleeping on floors in airports or uh, canceled connections and those kind of things, because that happens to everybody. But, but a couple do come to mind. In 2000, so getting back to that year, which is a long time ago now, but it was such a seminal 
you know, season in golf and, and, and just a, an important year historically in, in, in life. But um, Tiger played the British Open that year, won the British Open, the Open Championship at St. Andrews. I went from St. Andrews, uh, I covered that Open that year, I don't usually go, to Paris. I'd never been to Paris and uh, took the channel over from London, uh, spent 24 hours there, got back on the train, back to Heathrow, and then flew to Chicago, and then I was at the Quad Cities Tournament. So you've gone from St. Andrews, Scotland, to Paris, France, to the Quad Cities. It was like quite a transition <laughs> from uh, from the, the, the pinnacle areas in Europe to, to the heartland of America and just, you know, the remoteness almost of, of the Quad Cities. It's a great, and a, a very comparable to Hartford. It just has a very relaxed sort of summer-like you know, barbecue feel out there. The other one uh, that will play into your uh, New England audience there and Patriot fans, unfortunately, was the loss uh, by the Patriots after the 2007 season to the Giants. The perfect season was thwarted. So the next morning, we had done the Phoenix Open on that Sunday afternoon. Uh, I'm still living in the Bay Area at the time, jumping on, a, on the first flight from, from Phoenix, Sky Harbor, to San Francisco, and several of the Patriots, including Mike Vrabel, were on my flight. Now, they could not have gotten to bed until probably 3 or 4 in the morning. This flight's leaving at 6.15, 6.30. And to see the look on their face as they walked behind me, now, I'm in coach. They're going behind me to the back of the plane because they're going to the Pro Bowl. Wow. They're going from Phoenix, lost the Super Bowl, to San Francisco to connect to Honolulu. It was not a happy group, to say the least. But as a sidebar, I had done a radio documentary in San Francisco um, in the, at the end of 99. It was the history of Bay Area sports. And one of the shows of the five we did was on the Raiders. And sitting next to me in, in my aisle was Gene Upshaw, who, who was uh, drafted by the Raiders and um, had a Hall of Fame career and then was, uh, of course, running the, the Players Association and, and was attending that year's Super Bowl. I offered Mr. Upshaw to listen to uh, the show because it was on my laptop or on my iPod, one of the two, and he listened for 50-plus minutes to this show and, and was quite elated to hear his entire career sort of brought back to life in an audio format so that was an interesting day as well there you go what a, what a great stories behind the scenes and it goes to say you never know what you're going to see you're talking the patriot players <laughs> well hey tom i i really appreciate the time i know we went a little long but some fascinating stories i think it's cool to kind of go behind the scenes uh, with cbs sports and your work with jim nance and uh, the whole productions uh, really throughout the year Hey, Mike, uh, my pleasure, and like I said, you know a lot about it, and we, we enjoy uh, your company when you're out there, so good luck to you, and, and good luck with the podcast, and uh, I think you got a good thing going there, so keep, keep it up. Chestnut Hill Technologies is a leading technology integration and cybersecurity consulting firm based in the Boston area and owned by a BC alum. CHT provides world-class strategy and consulting to Fortune 500 and mid-cap firms throughout New England and nationally, including... State Street Bank, Amaj Pharma, and Intel Corporation. Check them out at chestnuthilltechnologies.com. That's chestnuthilltechnologies.com.
Pizzaglobe.com. At Stone Love and Pizza, their mission is simple, to offer the most creative selection of hand-tossed, all-natural pizza in the Neapolitan tradition. Their pizzas are cooked in a stone-fired brick oven directly on the stone to lock in the flavor. Stone Love and Pizza uses all-natural products. In other words, their dough, sauce, and cheese contain no additives, preservatives, or weird chemicals of any kind. Come visit one of Stone Lovin's three locations, including the newest location at 1649 Beacon Street in Newton. Go Eagles! Well, thanks so much for Tom Spencer, CBS Sports, for joining us here on the Lights, Camera, Sports podcast, presented by Chestnut Hill Technology. I hope everyone enjoyed it. Well, if you're a BC football fan, you need to be a part of the BC Football Gridiron Club. Just go to bcfootballgridiron.com to sign up and get more details as the season will be here before you know it. Also, special thanks to Chestnut Hill Technologies and Stone Love and Pizza. If you'd like to join them on the advertising front here for this fast-growing sports podcast called Lights, Camera, Sports, just email lightscamerasportsads, ads, at gmail.com. As always, thank you so much for listening. We'll see you again next week. This is Mike Galtieri signing off.